Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, lots to talk about this week. Um how are you to start with? Uh, I'm I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, we've we've done that thing again, haven't we Paul where we've tried to do get back, you know, on the straight and narrow and do every week and again it's a little bit more time than a week has elapsed and unfortunately we have to start with an apology. So we do apologize for being a bit slow on the turnaround, <laughs> but the end of this sort of rocky period may be in sight because we're getting back towards something a bit more like, well, cinema releases for a start, which always gives our show a sort of thrust and uh, structure and and sort of fills out the normal structure in a way that we're a bit more familiar with, so that's great. In addition to that, I feel on a personal level, Paul, I've come out of a period of, for whatever reason, just not watching many films. And I've got into a period now where I'm sort of back on the horse, so to speak. So I think that's going to help the show as well. What about from your side? Do you feel like you're getting back into a rhythm with this stuff? I've had a great week, I'll be honest. I've been to the cinema not once, not twice, not thrice, (laughs) not four times, but five times this week, Pete. So uh, yes, I would say it definitely feels like I'm getting back into the wagon. It's been lovely to go back to the cinema. I'll be 100% honest with you. I have missed it a lot. Um, So yeah, I mean, we'll talk more about that in a bit. But yeah, absolutely. I think it's nice. It seems to be there's going to be more regular releases at the cinema for sure because most cinemas have now reopened although not my local one in bath i've had to go across to bristol um, which is a bit of a pain but it was worth it um so yeah absolutely i think it's and and yeah life does seem to be returning to some sense of normality in the for now at least shall we say if you read the headlines there's a horrible possibility it might all go south again but for now uh yes life does seem to be approaching some sense of some sense of close normality than it has been so for sure i've been back to the gym this week as well which has been odd so it's almost like pre-lockdown life at the moment yeah yeah no i'm with you i've i've gone back to regular running i've been swimming this week for the first time in absolutely months and that was great as like a a pull to myself it was amazing so um yeah it's nice to have some of those things back like you say maybe it's all gonna go tits up again but for now you know, let's let's be thankful for the little positives. And, you know, one of the positive um, aspects of both of our lives is certainly movies. And so we'll get back into the show. As always, we've got a feature review this week. The feature that we're going to cover is called Palm Springs. I almost forgot the name of the film. Uh, it's called Palm Springs. This is the new one with Andy Samberg that I think a lot of people have had a chance to, to catch up with. And if not, we'll give you the uh, our once over on that movie as we get to the feature part of the show. Before that, though, we will also have uh, the section of the show, Popcorn Movies, we'll review the stuff that we've been watching over the last, what would be, I guess, 10 days or something like that. Now, uh, in addition, we've got In the Foyer coming up in just a moment where we're going to talk about something from the world of film. But that is not all. At the end of today's show, we're going to also tack on or add on a top five. Top five is obviously something that we've done over the lifespan of this show or at least a a good chunk of it and this week's top five ties into Palm Springs we're going to run down our top five time travel movies of whatever that might mean to us so we'll get to that at the end of the show for now Paul into the foyer what are we going to talk about this week so yeah, firstly, I just want to talk about uh, going back to the cinema, really, and kind of how the ex- how the experience um, differs to what you, you might be used to. Um, I've been over to, I will name them, because I think they did a really good job, I've been over to Showcase Cinema Deluxe in Bristol, so it's a fantastic cinema. Um, I've seen, This week I've seen, uh, so Old Boy, Jurassic Park, Battle Royale, uh, Back to the Future, 
and Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. Like, so what an eclectic mix of films to be able to give the opportunity to go and see. Like, I never in, I never thought in my wildest dreams I'd get to see Old Boy on a big screen, like full stop. So, um, so that's it's a great selection of films. Um, they're very, very strict on social distancing measures for sure. Um, the cinema has been very, very quiet to be honest. I think there was at most there was three other people in there. I think myself and my wife had the cinema to ourselves for Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. So that was a great experience. It was like, pass me the sandwich, darling. Like, just to sort of like just sort of having having a lunch in the cinema annoying no one which is great um yeah and when they in the times when there was other people in the cinema we were personally wearing masks um although there's no although that will be now become law i think from the 8th of august so um i thought it was really well handled i just think it's a shame for a showcase that it was so quiet but i guess it's going to take some time for for people to go back but yeah what an incredible run of films i think this this whole thing where they've been given we've talked about this on the show before where cinemas have been given this part of something like 450 films to pick from i think is a great idea hopefully it will slowly encourage people to to go back to the the screening i'll be interested to see how proxima does this week as you said pete i think you're going to see that after this yeah. show aren't you i think um which is kind of one of the bigger new releases on the cinema screen for sure so interesting to see how that does box office wise interesting to see how many people come out for that because i'm very keen to check that out as well so Overall, I think it's been a good experience going back to the cinema. Um, Pete, I guess you're looking forward to it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, man. I just wanted to, to drop in the fact that I've seen Old Boy on a big screen when I lived in South Korea, but I've not really mentioned that on the show, so <laughs> we'll move straight on. Um, yeah, but all the stuff you say, I mean, for a film fan, it's like a just incredible sort of buffet of availability right now. And like, yeah, they're going to be the bigger hitters. They're going to be the more mainstream films to attract the largest audience. But like, what a selection and what a rundown you've already, you know, listed off yourself from what you've caught up yeah. with. I hope to do a bit of the same. I mean, we've got here the, the Chris Nolan films are all getting a, a re-release, a reissue. Uh, we've got, yeah, various sort of classics. I think Shawshank Redemption's on here. There's a number of things to pick from. So I'm certainly going to squeeze as many into my schedule as I can, uh, albeit trying to sort of work my socks off at home at the same time and, you know, find a way out of this this mess. But yeah, really looking forward to getting back to the cinema. And, and I'm kind of glad, you know, amongst um, a lot of criticisms that I could have of sort of government legislation, you know, cooler heads have prevailed or I guess um, the logical decision has been taken to enforce the masks in cinemas thing, for example, because we're in this weird mm. situation where a particular high profile brand of cinema that everybody's aware of uh, had said that they weren't going to enforce a face mask, but then their staff had started an online petition campaigning for the enforcement of face masks. So you've got staff at war with their own company and quite rightfully so in my humble opinion so it's good that that's kind of taken out of the hands of people who are so desperate to protect their you know interests pro profiteering interests that they maybe risk public health uh, in the case of cough cough i won't name that cinema uh it's the one near me though so eagle-eyed uh, <laughs> eagle-eared listeners to this show might know what we're talking about uh yeah really happy to be going back to the cinema man and just like you it really has felt like like a profound loss. And that might, to, to like, people who aren't fans of, of cinema in, in the same way, and that would exclude anyone listening to this, I'm sure, but like, it might seem a bit weird to get so sort of worked up or so bothered or so downcast by not being able to go to the cinema. But when that is one of the greatest joys in your life and has been for your whole lifetime, uh, you know, in both of our cases, I think I can speak for you here too, Paul, then you you miss sure, it yeah. like the desert misses the rain it's a bit like the relationship that I have as a football fan with the return of football like for non-football fans yeah it's ridiculous you you know wait spend more time without football it doesn't matter it's bottom of the list yeah but it's also a very important part of some people's lives and so 
great to have it back. Really great to have it back. And it and it puts a bit of a, a spring in my step. And just, I guess, fingers crossed, like you said, that we don't then have to circle back to a situation where they all close again. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that that is that there possibly will be no cinemas to come back to if that happens again. But hey ho, we should we should remain positive. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about in the news, obviously since we've last been on air, is I don't know if you've seen this, Pete, but this comes from well, a number of articles. I'm using sourcing variety using variety as a source on this one, uh, just to just to give them credit. Um, this is the fact that. Um, there is there is so just before well in the midst of lockdown universal and amc who are the parent company of Odeon, i believe in this country so one of the us's biggest cinema chains um fell out um catastrophically over the fact that universal were going to release things on vod i believe at the same time as a uh, theatrical release was the was the issue they had um and you and amc basically refused point blank to show any universal films going forward which you know is quite big um They've patched this up now, but the way they've patched it up, I think, could fundamentally change a lot of the cinema going experience. Well, it won't fundamentally change the cinema going experience, but certainly will be certainly, I think, a big will rock the industry for sure. So at the moment, as I'm sure people are probably aware, once a film finishes at the cinema, there's about 75 to 90 days before films can appear on home entertainment platforms, um, which basically gives the cinemas a decent run at the films um, and enables cinemas to make money out of the exhibition. Um, Universal and AMC have now agreed that this will change um, and Universal's movies can go on to digital rental services after they've played in theatres for 17 days, so that's three weeks. So this whole big wait between a film coming out of the cinema and coming out on a home release uh, is potentially going to be gone because I can't see why other why other studios wouldn't try and want to negotiate the same deal. Pete, did, any thoughts on this uh... one? I mean, that's the critical point, the one that you made at the end there. It it depends on what the movements are in the wake of this. Because, yeah, if this is the, mm. you know, a paradigm shift towards a new model, which only allows for, what, less than three weeks, then that window, if you're saying seven, like one seven, 17 yeah. days as well. Yeah. One seven, 17 I, I mean, days, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what an interesting thing to track, I guess, because there's so much more of a pull then towards waiting for digital release of films. And it seems to me like that would be a fairly major threat to cinema attendances, not that they need any more threats right now. I mean, do you do you see this as a good thing or a bad thing, do you think? I mean, the, I mean, the fact that Universal and AMC have agreed on this must think that, uh, that Univ AMC can't think it, it harms them, I guess. But then I guess Universal are holding all the cards with a lot of the films. So... Um, I still think people will go to the cinema to see films. I think it's, uh, as the Variety article says, I think it's a case of kind of Universal just realising now that there has been a shift in how certain people will consume films. Not everyone feels the need necessarily to go to the cinema. Um, with the rise of, with the rise of, as, as we've talked about before, the rise of home cinema systems, larger TVs, surround sound systems, all this kind of thing. Um, I think I think it will suit some people. For me, I would still prefer to go to the cinema. I still think that's the certainly the the premium way to watch a film. And trust me, when you when you haven't been for such a long time, you will walk into a cinema and go, okay, like this is a hundred percent still for me the perfect film viewing environment. Like so, I, it will be an interesting one. I still think the cinema, the people who will go to the cinema will probably still go to the cinema. Um, but I, I, yeah, it's certainly an interesting one. It's something I never thought would see happen. I just kind of 
through all my life watching films, you've just got used to the fact there's a big gap between something finishing the cinema and it coming out on home release. So I'd be interested to see where this one goes um, and whether it does harm cinemas or not. But ultimately, I think the studios are holding a lot of the cards because without films to show, what the cinemas do. Yeah, I mean, it's also something that to some extent has been sort of Trojan horsed in by the fact that streaming platforms have had exclusives that have had, lim- uh, that have had limited cinematic runs, the relationship between Netflix and cinematic distribution being something that we've talked about before. Um, so, yeah, but I'm just interested, like, because what you said is... Um, as well that you will continue and I obviously I'll continue and you know big film fans uh, or fans of the cinema existing fans of the cinema are going to continue going but the majority of people I believe that go to the cinema are not those people like the bulk of your audience is that sort of middle of the road occasional occasional uh, cinema goer and I just wonder if that middle ground there is going to get eroded beyond repair from the vantage point of the future of cinematic screening I think I mean there is I think there is certainly that that risk as I said you know if you can buy what is it 20 quid I think some of the if you look at the Amazon straight from cinema thing or I use that in in, in bunny ears that's not exactly what it's called or home home premiere I think they're called on Amazon I think it's either 14.99 or 19.99 I forget at the moment but ultimately that is would unless you unless you're going on a sort of limitless or unlimited card that is still considerably cheaper than two, two or three or even a family ticket to go to the cinema. So I can see the appeal certainly for families. It's going to take a lot of the sting out of watching films. Um, so, yeah, there is there is a gamble. I suppose the winners here are the studios, really. Yeah, and, and I mean, again, coming back on something that we talked about when we had um, Zig and James on, the, the fact that perhaps cinemas... I mean, already because of what's happened with with recent events with the coronavirus, but like cinemas have to get creative and they have to offer something that is still desirable despite the alternative that exists with home streaming and like you say, limited window then cinematic window. And and so there's got to be more creativity in the industry from the point of view of how you're going to retain an audience because if you stand still, you'll be left behind. I mean, if the cinema chains don't do anything to innovate, I don't see a particularly bright future for sort of big multiplex cinemas. I still think there's going to be a place for art house cinemas, for for more niche cinemas that have existed and are funded by donations and supporters and members. And those will exist, but primarily in bigger urban areas. And again, this is a problem when it comes to protecting the industry nationwide and worldwide as well. So... Yeah, it'd be interesting to follow. And I guess we'll we'll check back in with this issue as things move forward and as other players deal with that issue in whatever way they do. Anything else this week, Paul, or should we get out of this section for uh, Not that really jumps out at me, to be honest. I think that's that's kind of what I wanted to what I wanted to discuss. <laughs> cool. Well in that case we'll take a short break and we'll be right back with the part of the show that we call popcorn movies right after this. So back we are with Popcorn Movies. This is the part of the show where we talk about films we've seen in between podcasts. We'll say that now. I think that gives us a bit more room for manoeuvre. Um, I've got quite a lot to talk about. As well as I alluded to before, I've seen a lot of the cinema this week, but it wasn't just that, that I wanted to talk about. Uh, Pete, do you want to jump in first? Or Yeah, I'm happy to. I've got a bunch, but I'll spin through them like fairly quickly I think um, okay so first one City of Tiny Lights this one is an Amazon exclusive I guess what do they call those on Amazon original an Amazon original yeah, yeah available on the, the Prime Video platform City of Tiny Lights uh, it is a vehicle for the acting talent of Riz Ahmed an actor that I like quite a lot um, and that's what 
pulled me towards this thing. Co-starring, to some degree co-starring with him, is Billy Piper, who's who sort of turned into, um, under the radar, turned into a fairly passable uh, actress. Um, so props to Billy Piper, but uh, not so much the director, Pete Travis. Pete Travis, the director of things like the Rashomon remake of sorts vantage point that you might remember from a decade or so ago and dread is it and not? dread is it not that is that dread? is a good point yeah absolutely the director of dread which led me to believe that this might have been better than it is but here's a problem paul urban dramas set in london are basically always shit and this is an urban drama set in London. And and the problem that it has is similar to the problem that that movie 100 Streets with Idris Elba that I think I've reviewed in Popcorn uh, earlier mm. in some time in the history of the show. Similar problems there. In so much as the film is trying to be something that it isn't. Initially, Travis sets fairly, like a fairly appealing sort of moody, dark, um, streetlight lit atmosphere in suburbs of London and central areas of London. But as the film progresses, it's like at turns trying to be a sort of gumshoe detective novel. It goes all kind of noirish. We have a voiceover as the Ahmed character who's on the pursuit of the murderer of a girl, basically. He's a, a private investigator. But it turns all into, you know, something you might get from, from, a Frank Miller adaptation where there's this this voiceover in the background and then it will suddenly shift into domestic drama and then it will shift into sort of American style high budget action drama without quite the budget to pull that off there's also absolutely egregious use of like low frame rate slow motion you know when it starts to feel like you didn't have a feature but you've padded it to being a feature by putting in loads of slow motion shots for some reason like Gaff Marenghi's Dark Place where they do that they do that for a whole episode I yeah think. yeah and I mean <laughs> if you were being generous you'd point to something like early Wong Kar Wai doing a similar thing but I mean this is not the territory that we're in here I mean Pete Travis might have uh, aspirations to be Wong Kar Wai but the the movie itself it, it just kind of it just kind of meanders just meanders and meanders and meanders to the point where you don't care about the characters anymore you feel slightly irritated by the whole thing and you cannot believe that it lasts almost two hours but i do want to point out that there is a line in this film that stood out like a sore thumb because it was kind of genius so we have uh riz ahmed recruits a kid to go and infiltrate the um islamic youth group in the area it seems like they might have an involvement in this murder that he's on the tail of right uh, so this kid meets up with the um riz ahmed character later on in a cafe to update him on what he's found and uh, he has been radicalized obviously by this point he's been radicalized so he says to riz ahmed well uh, you know you know bruv like it's all it's all like the west the west is going to fall isn't it and he's like what, what are you talking about and he says well you know like historical diuretic and without missing a beat, Riz Ahmed says, are you taking the piss? That's like, nice. that's like, you know, rap battle gold right there. But in a movie like this, you just see the screenplay sticking out sort of in front of your eyes. And I could admire that line, but the film itself is a drag. What have you got first, Paul? Uh, the first one is a film I've been trying to get hold of for years, um, and I had to ship the Blu-ray in from Japan, in all honesty, to to get this film, which is bizarre considering it's a Canadian film, uh, directed by one of my favourite directors working at the moment, Danny Villeneuve. 
Um, this is Polytechnic, uh, which is his dramatisation of the 1989 um, Montreal High School Massacre, uh, where several female engineering students were murdered by an unstable misogynist, like a lone shooter situation. So, yeah, it, it's not an easy watch. If you think Elephant, you're not too far from the kind of thing that we've got here. Um, but as you can imagine, this made by Denis Villeneuve um, is incredibly well shot and, and inc for me, just an incredibly... Uh, potent dramatization i thought it was uh, as much as you can enjoy this kind of material like this is incredibly well put together i arguably a couple of slightly strange narrative choices that don't th the more i think about them the more i think they don't always work in some in certain ways they've they followed certain characters and it is obviously based on true events and what happened to the characters after the fact i'm not going to spoil anything here um yeah a couple of slight change narrative decisions but as you can imagine from denny villeneuve um handling this kind of material i think it's second or third film i might be mistaken there but it's just superbly shot and superbly put together so if you get a chance to watch it um and are in the mood for that kind of thing uh it comes highly recommended nice uh, at the beginning of this show paul we were talking about you going back to the cinema i'd actually overlooked the fact that i have kind of been back to the cinema this week already uh because i mean this is going to make me seem very cool in your eyes uh i went with my wife to blenheim palace to watch a drive-in screening of pretty woman oh nice <laughs> So uh, we caught up with Pretty Woman. Basically, this was something that my wife got for her birthday. There were only a few choices that we could make. One of them was Joker that she wasn't interested in. And to be honest, small mercies, I'm glad I didn't want to see it again. Uh, <laughs> the other one was uh, the film uh, from the Korean director that just won an Oscar that I've forgotten the name of already. Parasite. Parasite, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, yeah Parasite, which is fantastic, but felt like an odd choice for a drive-in cinema with, with your wife maybe on a quiet evening. So we went to Pretty Woman and like... I don't know, man. When I was a kid and I saw Pretty Woman for the first time, it affected me fairly profoundly. I mean, this movie came out when I was six or seven years old and I would have seen it on home release when I was younger than I should have been watching the movie, probably. Having said that, you know Pretty Woman's originally a Disney production, right? Uh, I, no. I, well, now you, tell, now you tell me it rings a bell, which is quite bizarre because it's quite a dark quite a dark story yeah and it's also one of those movies like um risky business with tom cruise or something that was like made around a certain sort of late 80s early 90s window of time which is darker when you look at it with 2020 eyes 2020 mm. vision if you like because i mean oh. yeah here we've got like this Julia Roberts' character, obviously, you, I think people know what the story is here, but she's picked up on the Hollywood Boulevard or wherever the hell they are uh, by Richard Gere, who's this moneyed guy who's got like limitless funds. And he hires her effectively as his uh, call girl, but then keeps her on on a sort of retainer so that she can spend time with him and have a taste of the high life. But like, it's a pretty patronizing view of, uh, of a woman's you know, the, the rounded nature of a woman's life. It's all kind of reduced down to cliches about what she won't know and the things in society that she won't understand so that we can make what is a sort of rags to riches princess fable out of something that, you know, I mean, I, I couldn't help but sort of joke in it that, that like, there would be another ending to this film where when Julia Roberts has the it must have been love rock set moment breaks up with Richard Gere and goes and hangs out with her friend who also is a cool girl that one or both of them ODs on heroin and then the film just ends but obviously that's not what you were going to get here so instead that you know that moment when rock set plays and it's like 
It's it must have been love. Vaguely, I've got vague memories of this. I'll be honest, I haven't seen it as recently. So, so I was like emotionally quite quite moved by that when I was a kid, but I'd forgotten that that sequence of them splitting up and being separate from each other lasts about a minute, and then it's like, oh, he climbs up the fire escape and everything's fine, and they're going to spend the rest of their lives together. So yeah, I don't know, man. It, not that I'm shocked that Pretty Woman is is sort of um, shallower than I remembered it being but it is a bit shallower than i remembered it being and um as much as julia roberts is pretty uh, magnificent here like she just kind of sparkles you can see why she became a big star i guess uh the whole thing is a bit creepy and also richard gears like a sort of proto christian gray at a lot of points in this this movie so uh yeah that's pretty woman i'll get out of this one what have you got uh, I don't know if you've heard of this one, but again, as I said, I've seen it in the cinema. Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, which is 20 years old next year, which is absolutely terrifying. I don't know why certain, the age of certain films scares me more than others, but yeah, the age of Lord of the Rings does terrify me. Um, what a delight to see this on the big screen again. Uh, for me, this, I think, is my favourite. I'm going to see the others The others in the in the weeks ahead so they're showing the the trilogy which is great this for me I think remains my favourite I said what it lacks in the big battles that the sequels have I think it makes up for in certainly more intimate character study um, and I'd say probably a tighter script probably than the others Um, and still with some truly incredible set pieces the Minds of Moria set piece is just flawless in terms of a a fantasy set piece where uh, Gandalf faces off against the Balrog it's just it's just classic cinema, in my opinion, and I absolutely love Lord of the Rings. I think even, as I said, nearly 20 years on, for me, uh, this still remains, I think, the benchmark of kind of big screen fantasy, for sure. Um, and I can't wait to see I can't wait to see the sequels at the cinema again. But yeah, watching this on the big screen again was an incredible experience. Um, yeah, it's great. If you get a chance, if, if they show it in Cheltenham and you get a chance, it's well worth picking up on the big screen, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't like Lord of the Rings, so I probably won't do that. (laughs) Don't then. And and, I mean, I can see, again, it's one of those, I can totally see why people are into the thing. It's more for me that in my relationship, my wife loves Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and I was dragged to, at least in The Hobbit trilogy, all of those, which went on forever. And then the end of a movie would just be like, oh, a thing's about to happen, come back in a year and you'll you'll find out what happens next so i'm not the biggest advocate but if no. I, you know who knows in a week's time i might be sat here saying i was i was taken <laughs> along and i went and saw it so uh paul a phenomenon next for you uh, i don't know if you've picked up on this particular one and it relates directly to the movie i'm reviewing uh daniel radcliffe and stuff attached to him or growing out of him This is a theme that I've noticed. So we've had, for example, that Frankenstein one that he made with McAvoy, James McAvoy. Is that uh, that called Frankenstein? Dr. Frankenstein, isn't it? Dr. Frankenstein, maybe, yeah. yeah. Where he has a big, like, pus sack growing out of his back, and it is horrendous. Then there is uh, Guns Akimbo, when he wakes up and he has guns attached to his hands and he can't remove them. And then this movie here, Horns, uh, in which Daniel... This is a strange film. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, D- Daniel Radcliffe's girlfriend, played by Juno Temple, dies in mysterious circumstances and he wakes up with horns growing out of his head that only some people seem to be able to see. Those horns are initially, to cite a fairly potent comic effect, able to bring the worst out in people. People will speak their minds. It's a bit like, uh, what's the Ricky Gervais one? Like the invention of lying or yeah. whatever, where people, or liar, liar, something like that. Uh, yeah, so that stuff, quite amusing. Uh, this is an Alex Iyer film. Alex Iyer, of course, who made things like Piranha 3D, The Hills Have Eyes, High Tension way back in the day, and Crawl, like last year, which we like quite a lot. But this goes into the other category of Alex Iyer movies, which are the not very good 
Alex I movies like shambles. It's an absolute shambles. I remember watching this yeah. thinking, what a mess. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was waiting for it to do that sort of cut, you know, cut and thrust Alex Iyer thing, like no fat on the bone and just kind of getting to the point. But it, it goes really, really sort of like his most emo kind of eyeliner movie. Um, lots of Daniel Radcliffe moping about, lots of sort of repetitive sequences. Max Minghella basically asleep in this. And I guess that's his way of being under the radar in case it turns out that he's got some connection to what happened. But yeah, I just... I just felt very let down by my boy Alex Ayer because I feel like I like I praise him quite a bit. And this is one that's got stood out for me for a while. Like, why haven't I caught up with that yet? Well, this is why, I think. I am 100% with you. Like, I watched it. I watched it. I was like, okay, I'm looking forward to this. This could be cool. I like the premise. I like the fact it looks bonkers. And then it just, I remember just, I don't remember a lot about it, which is not a good sign for a start. But I remember just being all over the shop, to be honest. And it just... It never really gelled. I'm not sure what what the what the intention was with it. I think there's a decent movie in there, but it's the movie about when you're around the guy with the horns, you are your you know id, and for all it's like warts and all, and like the horrible sort of um, base version of yourself. Like that stuff worked, but a lot of the rest of it, a lot of the like plot threads that they picked up and dropped and then came back later like this didn't work and also Juno Temple in this an actress that I like a lot and I talk about that regularly on the show gets to get sexually assaulted be out of the movie for a bunch of time and then be like a kind of ethereal angel character in flashback she deserves a lot better than that um yeah didn't like it not very good don't bother if you haven't seen it yet rewatch crawl or like high tension or even the hills of eyes remake I mean watch any of those uh I'm going to squeeze one more in, Paul, because it doesn't need much saying about it. This is uh, the to-do list from director and writer Maggie Carey from 2013. Have you seen this one yet? No. It's a Aubrey Plaza joint. It was kind of, oh, okay. kind of in that period where Aubrey Plaza was breaking out, like right on the cusp, I guess, of breaking out into features from television, um, I suppose, or at least supplementing her uh, reach with theatrical stuff. And like... Th- In theory, um, this could be the sort of female American pie, I guess, female perspective American pie. You've got a girl in Aubrey Plaza who, a bit like in Booksmart, realises that she has been sort of bookish and um, the valedictorian, I think she's valedictorian of her class at the beginning of the movie, but she's missed out on getting sexual experiences. So she creates a list of all the things that she's going to try, that she's heard people talking about, and she sets out finding boys who are willing to participate in those things, which, let's be honest most boys uh so she doesn't struggle i mean the good here is uh she goes and volunteers or works at a a swimming pool outdoor swimming pool bill hader is the boss of that swimming pool it's not quite sam rockwell in the way way back who i think is still my current favorite guy owning uh you know outdoor water park in recent movies (laughs) but bill hader's pretty good value in this um some of the supporting characters the the sort of big male love interest is a character called rusty waters which i quite appreciate played by scott porter who's just sort of a chris hemsworth sort of second division kind of figure uh but overall just too many of the jokes don't land and it's a shame i like aubrey plaza i think she's grown into sort of a, a good actress over time but this is a rewatch and it didn't stand up very well. I think I thought of it as a slightly better film than it actually turns out that it is. Um, if you are looking for something, you know, knock about an American Pie-esque, then cool, go for it. But yeah, it's slightly disappointing. Uh, what have you got next, Paul? Uh, yeah, I've got a few more to, to squeeze in. Um, again, like 
Battle Royale. I watched this week again on the big screen, which was great. Um, this came out. It was very, very controversial at the time because I guess it features uh, school children killing each other. So I can fully understand why it would be controversial. Um, and it still rem- the violence still hits pretty hard today, to be honest. It certainly doesn't take any prisoners. Um, there's the incredible scene in the classroom, uh, in the classroom towards the beginning of the film. Do you remember much of this film, Pete? Have you watched it recently? Uh, not for uh, probably. 10 to 15 years so the answer is no okay there's this incredible bit where with beat takeshi just throws a knife into a school child's head um and that that kind of sets sets the tone for what's to come um as a satire to be honest it's it's basically the the premise of battle royale if you don't know it is um is where the hunger games the hunger games has definitely stolen so much from battle royale there's this they can't argue it they, they can't argue it um the premise is the japanese government uh, captures a class of ninth grade students and forces them to kill each other under an act called the battle royale act now the battle royale act is a political act that's been um that's been put into place by the government because they consider teenagers to be out of control so um and they need to they need more respect for the adults so they basically just try they pick a class at random every year and the class kills each other off until there's one one remaining one remaining member um so yeah i would say this the satire hasn't really aged in terms of in terms of where we stand with it i still think there's probably now more so than even in the year 2000 there is a generational divide that this film i think does a very 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 good job of highlighting i know it's been an issue i think it's always been a bigger issue in japan than it has been over here but i think it still i think it resonates fairly well um the set pieces stand up it's a very fun enjoyable um very violent kind of piece of exploitation cinema at the same time as being a fairly effective satire so yeah it was nice to see Again, what an opportunity to see it on the big screen, uh, and it held up really well. Nice. Um, one that is, well, I guess, holds up well would be a fair way to uh, describe it, but also one that's sort of a counter to my last one. The to-do list I rewatched and went down in my estimation. This one I've rewatched and it's kind of crept up there a little bit. Paul, have you seen Greg McLean's follow-up to Wolf Creek, as in Wolf Creek Two? I actually quite rated Wolf Creek 2 on first watch when I remember quite enjoying it. Yeah, I I had it down as like all right, like passable. But there's a particular reason why I now rate Wolf Creek 2. It's not the sort of generic opening. This time we've switched from Australian tourists to, um, I think, are they German or Austrian or something tourists at the beginning? Uh, Who very quickly reach a, a fairly sticky end. But like we then sort of pinball over to a couple of side plots and a couple of other people it's certainly not the cgi kangaroo sequence that i think some people are quite hot on which i just think looks kind of ridiculous uh it is though paul this actor ryan core who shows up in the second half of the film as a concerned english traveler tourist who intersects with our uh, the guy played by John Jarrett what's he called at the Mick something or other isn't he Mick Taylor the kind of crocodile dundee that's not a knife this is a knife like guy that we know so well from Wolf Creek who terrorizes backpackers who are out in the outback in Australia and the whole the whole thing that you have to understand about Wolf Creek if you're a fan which I would count myself as coming out of the first movie I was quite a big advocate of that movie is that But what really grabbed me about it is the way that this Mick Taylor character is painted as someone who isn't just psychotic from the off. He's a guy who will only turn psychotic if you accidentally or maybe deliberately disrespect him or particularly Australian culture in some way. And (laughs) and I kind of appreciate that little detail that becomes a significant detail in the second movie because with this English guy, do you remember the long sequence of kind of torture 
stuff that happens. Does ring a bell, yeah. He, yeah. he says to this English guy, right, he's got him like ch- chained, uh, chained up, tied up to a chair. And he's like, right, we're going to play a game, uh, kind of saw style. We're going to play a game. You've got 10 fingers. I'm going to ask you 10 questions. For each one that you get wrong, I'm going to cut off one of your fingers. And then he starts asking him questions about real life Australian history, um, about uh, Aboriginal people, about uh, the movement of uh, convicts from the United Kingdom and Great Britain over to Australia in a, you know, the, the days of the, the colony there in the empire. And then it turns out the British guys actually studied Australian history at university level and it becomes this real head to head. But it's just really quite funny, well observed, really well performed by both of them. And it got me right back on side. Like the first half of the movie, I think, is fine. The second half, something a little bit special or at least for what you might expect for a you know, straight up sequel to to a movie that felt like it had already run its course. So yeah, that's Wolf Wolf Creek 2, I should say. Anything else, Paul? Yeah, there's a couple more I wanted to squeeze in. Old Boy, which I mentioned I've been to see at the cinema. Fucking hell, that's an absolute beast of a film. I have not seen Old Boy for far too many years. It's absolutely, it's what a gut punch of a revenge thriller. Like, come at me, it's one of the finest revenge thrillers I think committed to the screen. It's such a powerful film. Um, the performances are incredible. It looks fantastic from Park Chanuk without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I, I just, I couldn't fault it to be honest. I just came out of it just like it was the end of a, it was a triple bill of Back to the Future, um, Battle Royale, and Old Boy, and that was absolutely, I think, me the, the the right order to do it in. I'd forgotten how good Old Boy actually is, and I feel bad for forgetting how good Old Boy is because it's incredible, and I absolutely loved it. Nice, yeah, I can't compete with that with my next one. Um, this is a bit of a disappointment, Paul. Uh, you know that I've sort of banged on a bit about the director Alex Ross Perry, um, mm. stuff like The Queen of Earth and uh, Listen Up, Philip, and recently last year Her Smell, which I liked a great deal. Uh, I think it got mm. on my top ten of the year list. Actually, uh, this one is one of the outliers in so much as it's one that I hadn't caught up with until this week. Golden Exits. Uh, do you know anything about this movie, Paul? No. No, I still haven't caught up with her smell, actually, which I need to. So I'm going to have that go to that list. first. Definitely go to that first. Yeah. So this is, um, well, what's interesting about it? Adam Horowitz, you might recognize the name. One of the trio of guys that make up the Beastie Boys um, has transitioned into uh, acting uh, here. And he has a central role in this and very much the sort of indie actors, you know, dream role. He gets to play uh, like maybe that's a, a, a not a fair um, classification a very, very cliched kind of role that you get in this kind of indie movie. So he plays a guy whose job it is to uh, catalogue the lives of people who are recently deceased. So like a, a sort of biographer for regular people, or at least, or, or perhaps people of some prominence, but not celebrities per se. Uh, he is in the process of doing that for uh, his wife's father, so his wife's deceased father. And Within that, he hires an assistant to help him with this process, played by Emily Browning, um, the sort of human embodiment of a perfectly formed doll that you've seen in a number of things where they play on the fact that she looks like the human embodiment of a perfectly formed doll. And here that happens. And I think Emily Browning is is fine, but the film is very like... um, 
Alex Ross Perry has got distracted by her cheekbones and the nape of her neck, as have all the characters. Everybody's falling over themselves to get in her pants here. From the Horowitz character who spends all this time in a basement with her doing his work, but basically just looking across the room at the nape of her neck and dreaming about how much better it might be to not be married to his wife. Uh, Jason Schwartzman, who of course is going to crop up in an Alex Ross Perry film, and I like a lot, but he plays a pretty uninteresting sort of guy who lives how he wants, but is also married and also wants to get in Emily Browning's pants. But it's all just very like ennui, on ennui, on sort of twinkling orchestral music, on like, oh, the problems of being in a relationship. Isn't it difficult? What will happen? Well, we'll discuss it for a while, but maybe guys ultimately all want to cheat. Like, there's just so little being said. And I expect more from Alex Ross Perry. And that's why I feel, you know, I'm not angry, Paul. I'm just... I'm just disappointed. Um, I, I, I really would expect better. And this came to me as a bit of a misfire um, and it didn't really take me anywhere. I don't feel like I benefited any from having seen it. Um, other than, like I say, getting to know Adam Horowitz as an actor rather than a, a member of a hip hop collective. Uh, there's there's not tons to recommend this one. I've got one more. Do you have any more to do? I do have one more, yeah. Yeah, I, I do have one more, which is... I'll jump in if that's all right, because this is one of... This is already a contender for worst film of 2020, uh, and if not one of the worst films I've seen in the last two or three years. It's absolutely horrendous. Simon Pegg, if you're going to lose weight for a film, can you actually read the script first and make sure it's good? Uh, this is Inheritance, uh, directed by Vaughan Steen, uh, starring Lily Collins, Simon Pegg, um, among others, Connie Nilsson's in here, Chance Crawford, who people will recognise the Deep from the Amazon show The Boys. Um, this, the premise of this is uh, the patriarch of a wealthy and powerful family suddenly passes away, leaving his daughter with a shocking secret inheritance that threatens to destroy and unravel the whole family. Um, there's some plot twists in here. None of them make any sense. The film is almost catastrophically boring in parts, like to the point where every time you press it, you kind of press pause and you realise that sort of two and a half, three minutes have passed. It's it's that dull. The plot twists are so ridiculous that you just cannot buy any of this film in the slightest. And then you like Lily Collins is giving it her best in this. Um, I think the, the, the cast the, the cast are trying. I'll give it that much, but. Lily Collins is the DA of like is the new is the DA of New York, so she's the district attorney for Manhattan, I think. In this, you've got Chance Crawford, the Deep from the Boys. I don't know if you've seen this. You're expected to believe that he's a senator. So everyone is horribly miscast here. Like they're cast probably 10, 15 years too young for their role. So immediately you can't you can't buy into the film. Said Hugh swathes of it are just utterly boring, and the last half an hour is just uh, it's just farce. Simon Pegg's miscast as this kind of creepy villainous guy that's locked in the basement that's not a, that's not a spoiler it's given away in the trailer please guys just don't just don't but, just do yourself a favor and avoid this theory though paul because like i've introduced uh, my wife to spaced this week actually like she's been watching them for the first time she's not seen them before so like yeah. you know i'm not here to shit on simon Pegg, but simon Pegg outside of edgar wright films and mission impossible films pretty much makes bad films i would i would be inclined to agree with that to be honest i think but he's he's just horribly miscast here and i'm not sure what what his performance is i don't by his own admission i don't think he's an actor with in, with incredible range but the, honestly this is just bad like there's a moment that my wife noticed where you've got a shot of lily collins where she's wearing uh she's wearing kind of knee-high boots and a long jacket and then it cuts to the next shot and she's got shoes on and no time has passed it's like things like that just like it's just bad on so many levels just 
Absolutely. I saw this on the. I saw this. I meant to put this picture out on the Instagram the other day. I saw this on a shelf in HMV with the fanatic that's now finally out over here. So, uh, and I thought, what a double bill that would be. Just go in and buy these two films on DVD: the fanatic and Inheritance. The fanatic would at least make you laugh, and at least isn't boring, um, but it is terrible. But this this commits the cardinal sin of not only being bad but being boring. So, still well clear. I hated this film. I absolutely hated this film. I'll be honest. And there's the uh, the Simon Pegg Juno Temple one, Lost Transmissions, that I've been meaning to catch up with because that may be slightly better than what you're describing. But yeah, I haven't... it can't be worse than Inheritance. I'll be honest. I mean, if you if you're a glutton for punishment and you want to see a catastrophically bad film, then chuck yourself into Inheritance. <laughs> That's a small and niche group. Um, I've I've got yeah. one more, Paul, and and this is uh, Manor from Heaven for for me. Uh, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, we reviewed the Olivia Assayas movie Wasp Network, which we I think agreed was good in places, definitely not great, and and flawed on a number of levels, a number of fronts. I think that was the the sort of um, rough surmising of what we said about that movie, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is the Olivia Assayas movie from the last couple of years to pay attention to. It's non-fiction. I finally caught up with non-fiction, and as it began, as we got into the first act, it was like getting into a sort of cool oasis of what it is that I want from Olivia Assayas. We've got here French people who've got quite a lot of money talking about the publishing industry. If that sounds like, you know, the absolute opposite of what you're into, then still well clear. But for me, oh, goodness me, this is where we need to be. Olivier Assayas does so well when he's dealing with real people who are dealing with real people and small moments of transition. It's something I tried to get across when we were talking about Wasp Network, like moments of change, moments in life that can be transitional in some way. And this is really what nonfiction is concerned with. I mean, yes, from a certain perspective, this is another French Indian movie about people who are sort of sleeping with each other in ways that they maybe shouldn't be at least with the wrong people uh, the technique is up to them uh, but uh, <laughs> the, in addition it's concerned with yeah the, the basically higher society I suppose like first world problems and so forth and it is also another film in which Asayas is really dealing with the um, the creep of modern technology or the flood of mon- modern technology more accurately so of course in Personal Shopper you had that extended sequence of text messaging which I thought was one of the strongest suits of the whole film actually although I know some people didn't go for it here you've got just casual mention of pop culture figures from sort of Taylor Swift to Twitter to you know things that people actually talk about but are woven into the script in a way that I think is fairly nimble and fairly able on the part of Asaeus you know a director who is who is certainly a little older than you might expect for someone to be keyed in. And and I mean, his characters speak from the position of being slightly outside the loop in terms of that stuff as well. So it resonates, I think. Uh, at the centre of this, who have you got? Of course, it's Juliette Binoche, uh, supported by Guillaume Canet. Uh, yeah, p- people have affairs, people talk about publishing, but I thought it was wonderful and uh, a far better movie. It just works much better than Wasp Network. So glad to have it. Uh, check that one out if you get the chance. Released sort of a year or so ago, but that one's non-fiction. Any more, Paul? Uh, no, all good for this week. Cool. Well, in that case, we will duck out of here for a moment. We'll take a little break. We'll gather ourselves and then we'll come back with a full feature review of this week's feature, Palm Springs, right after this. So, yeah, this week's feature um, is a... This is Palm Springs. Uh, this is the uh, time loop comedy film uh, star... We're directed by Max Babacow. 
um, written by Andy Ciara and starring Andy Samberg and Christian Miliotti and J.K. Simmons. Uh, Pete, do you want to set this one up for us? Yeah, so what we've got here is uh, a guy played by Andy Samberg going by the name of Niles who is at a wedding at the outset of the movie. He's at a wedding and he seems pretty laid back. He seems to have a, seems to have a sort of Andy Samberg-ness about him in so much as he's sort of nonchalant about things and fairly carefree. But what transpires quite quickly and as as Paul's kind of trailed already that the reason that he might have some nonchalance about events is because he's literally seen it all before he's trapped in a time loop that keeps bringing him back to the beginning of the day in which friends of his are to be married in Palm Springs from this point events transpire and those events take in Kristin Miliotti's character who gets caught up let's say in this web of time looping time looping and time looping again and again and again think of course of something like Groundhog Day and more recently uh, Happy Death Day and and others uh, are available as points of reference but I think everybody's going to describe this in one way as a uh, one way or another as a spring on a spring on? I've Palm lost the plot. Uh, as a spin, yeah, a spin on, I'm tired, a spin on uh, Groundhog Day. Uh, before we get into our full thoughts and I remember how to speak English, here's a little clip. Have we roped up? No, at least I don't think so. So, like, who else? Right, uh, well... Besides Misty. Daisy, the barkeep. You know, I once hit a guy with this car. Oh, yeah? I don't think he ever walked again. Darla. If you insist. I bet that was great. You would have bet right. What about Tala? No, but I have tried. May I cut in? It's the first dance. And that's a deal breaker? That didn't work? It was a big swing. Right. So yeah, it's interesting you mentioned. Obviously, you mentioned the the well, the films that you've mentioned that clearly inspire this with Groundhog Day, Happy Death Day. Like Happy Death Day is, is a. I really like Happy Death Day actually. I think it's a great film. Um, but yeah, so this is this for me when I kind of first saw the trailer to this, I thought, uh oh, this seems like well worn territory, and I was a little bit concerned as to whether it would do enough new or different to kind of justify existence. Would you say that was a, a concern of yours, Pete, going into this? Or Yeah, I mean, I thought, uh, I like Andy Samberg. He's a good time. I thought, stick Andy Samberg in a sort of time-looping comedy. Yeah. It'll be good enough. Yeah. But I think that's all I was I was really hopeful of, is a sort of three-star good enough movie. And that's, yeah, so maybe a bit like you, that's where I, I started from. Um, but is that where you finished, or is this better than that? No, I absolutely not. I think this was a lot better than that. And I think that those, I think that the first thing that jumps out at me. Um, so you've got Andy Samberg, who's an actor that I'm, I'm very fond of. J.K. Simmons is great. He's a great character actor in what he does. And you've got Kristin Milotti, who I first experienced in the standalone episode of Mythic Quest, the Apple TV Plus, uh, the Apple TV Plus series about video game development. I think I talked that talked about it in the credit section on the show. Um, and I thought she was fantastic in that. And I think she is one of the, the beating hearts of the movie here. For me, what worked for this, as much as some of the time loop stuff, is just chemistry, chemistry, chemistry between the two leads. Um, I thought I thought they were great together. I thought they were very, very funny. They bounced off each other very, very well. Um, I think without the chemistry of the leads, I don't think this film would have been as watchable as it was for me. Um, agree? Yeah, disagree? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not to, to keep hammering on the, um, the Groundhog Day thing, but 
the Bill Murray, Andy McDowell chemistry in that movie, I think is one of the things that, that really helps it to stand up after, uh, over all this time. Mm. And so I think you're onto something in terms of that. And I, like, Kristin Milioti is someone who seems familiar to me, but I don't know why. She was in How I Met Your Mother, yeah. I believe, but I said it's, that's, uh, she, it's not a series I've watched. She was in looking honest, so. quickly at, at notes and stuff. She was in The Wolf of Wall Street in a supporting role. Um, but she was also in The Brass Teapot, another Juno Temple film that's worth checking out, by the way. Uh, so I've obviously seen her around places, but yeah, maybe never in a in a central role, like a leading role. And let's give her some more because, yeah, as you quite rightly say, I think she's really good here. And Sandberg is as well. I mean, he's a guy who adapts pretty well to big screen if you like material though this is going to be a, a streamer i think you know more than it is going to be a big screen release but uh yeah chemistry at the center of the film certainly i think the writing is pretty intelligent here in terms of trying to do something a little bit different with the way that the characters ruminate on sort of the nature of time the mm. nature of purpose what it is that you're trying to get out of life effectively because really if it's not making me sound like too much of a knobhead and i hope some other people are, are on the same page once they get to see the film of course this is a, a rumination on on the sort of purpose and direction not only of life but on relationships in general uh I would, yeah, I would monogamy relationships yeah. why this, you would tie yeah. yourself to someone to do the same things over and over again or be in one place and repeat a load of events throughout the course of a life and i mean that all sounds like fairly high-minded stuff and within an andy samberg comedy movie that i was expecting to be a sort of three out of ten job uh kind of more than you more than you bargain for i guess you get with with palm springs so from those points alone i think there's enough to like here is there stuff that i'm missing is like other good stuff paul about the movie or what jk simmons jk simmons is clearly having the time of his life mm. here um so jk simmons is essentially again I'm, I'm trying not to drift into spoiler territory here jk simmons is a man that is plays a man who's inexplicably seem, seem at the beginning inexplicably hunting andy sandberg's character um and will not give up until he sees andy sandberg dead um and obviously by the fact you're in a time loop it means he has succeeded more than once at killing andy sandberg's character um so yeah i think jk simmons is great here i think he's he adds i think he adds a he adds like a slightly ludicrous element to the story but i think he does add something to it. i think when he when he appears he kind of keeps it keeps the keeps it fresh um i think he he worked really well and i just thought yeah as i said i think the time loop stuff is, is handled really 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 well it's kind of it can be quite an easy thing to do lazily um it can just be just throw it in oh you've got your gimmick now but i think it's it's handled pretty well here um and i completely agree with you in the terms of the fact that it's it's commenting on relationships and, and direction of life and this kind of thing and the fact that they just kind of andy sandberg's character just realizes just right i'm just going to get off my tits and go to this wedding every day because why why would i do anything else like there's no consequences to my actions so um why why would i change why would i change my way which i think is great because a lot of these are oh maybe i need to do something di maybe i need to change my behavior to get out of this time loop where this doesn't go down that route which is quite good and i like the fact it kind of comments on the fact that andy samper's character never does this um never does this and the film actively comments on the fact oh i've tried to do this and i've tried to make this work and i've tried to do this and then he just continues acting like an asshole essentially because uh, there's no consequences to action so i really like that that kept it yeah fresh and, me, and at once without getting spoilery as well the film's takeaway ultimately isn't just do whatever the fuck you want because nothing matters like it 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 pulls no, the, not, up no. the nose you know bef before we get to the end of the movie i suppose i could say it like that uh, and so it, there's a, a chance to sort of reflect on that take on 
this situation and also on life. You know, the idea of like, well, nothing changes, so who cares uh, is something that sort of wrestled with at some length here. So, yeah, I, I quite admire this movie considering my fairly low expectations going in. And I should also say, Paul, that you mentioned at the top that Max Babakow, or Babakov, I'm not sure, the director of the movie, this is his feature debut. And Andy Ciara, who's written the screenplay, this is also his feature debut in terms of a, a feature screenplay. So, pretty impressive work. Yeah. It's impressive stuff. Yeah. Very impressive. I wasn't aware of that. But yeah, that's very impressive work for, for yeah, <laughs> for a first time. For a first-time writer and certainly feature director, that's yeah, and, and I will tell stuff. you something for nothing there, Paul Anderson. Also about this film that I think is uh, eternally to its credit, the runtime is a cool one hour and thirty minutes. It's one of those that has ideas, lays out its ideas in a fairly coherent, cogent way, and then checks out of the place so that we're not kept hanging around for another thirty minutes of you know jokes that weren't cut from the the edit. You know so well done well done for finishing your movie promptly and getting across a series of of pretty interesting talking points and then it's funny like it'll make you laugh there are jokes in here maybe it's not hilarious throughout but it made me laugh i enjoyed it and then it finished and you know sometimes that's what you really ask for yeah i don't completely agree i think this this currently rates is probably my most probably one of my most pleasant surprises of the year i think so far because i because it, i was expecting this to be fairly average if I'm honest and I came out thinking that was great I really enjoyed it so uh, yeah it's definitely definitely recommended well, for me let's keep up the positivity Paul you're saying that this is uh, you know far above average perhaps well some other movies that are far above average are going to be our top five time travel films of all time or maybe skewing towards contemporary movies because that's what I tend to remember when we make these lists but that is to come before or after this break see you soon So yeah, top five time travel movies. You say again. I'm totally with you. When when we put these lists together, I'm sure there's a, there's better films that are that are on this list. Uh, but I've gone with personal favourites. Absolutely with personal favourites. As you will be aware, as soon as we hit my number five pick, um, it's there certainly are better time travel films out there than some of the ones I've picked. But these are ones that resonate with me. Um, should I jump in first with number five, Pete? Or? Uh, it sounds like you're going to go ahead. I'm going to. I'm in. I'm in. Uh, right. So again, as I said before, just as I've said before. I will repeat myself here. I am aware there are probably better time travel movies than this one out there in existence, but I have a soft spot for Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. I, I love Star Trek, as, as people are aware, um, and this, I thought, was such a brilliant premise to take the crew of the Enterprise out of their science fiction setting and bring them into, at the time, contemporary uh, 1986 um, in the US. And you, what you get is less of a clever time travel movie although the, the obviously time travel gets them there and more for me a genuinely charming fish out of water comedy um that always makes me laugh and i think you see some of the for me you see some of the the um the best chemistry between um shatner leonard nimoy and deforest kelly in this um i think is when like, some of the strong i th for me it's some of the strongest character work of the series here because there's there's less sort of there's less things to blow up um, there's less sci-fi in this film and there's more as I said fish out of the water comedy so at number five for me and come at me because I know there's better films but Star Trek 4 the voyage home is my number five yeah and I mean the kind of person who would actually come at you over that is you know not welcome it's just not welcome because ultimately <laughs> yeah. we control the list and we do what we want uh 
I have, yeah. And talking of which, Paul, we're doing a top five. Pick five movies. Well, I've picked six movies. Number five is a joint pick. I'm going for two, I think, lesser seen modern indie movies that I think fit the category and are worth people checking out. So the first of these two is The Man from Earth. Do you know this one? Uh, No, I've not seen The Man from Earth. The Man from Earth 2007 mini budget movie uh, with a very simple sort of high concept premise, which is that there is a man who works, I think, at the beginning as a uh, school teacher, uh, uh, some kind of professor. Uh, But at a dinner party, he reveals to the other uh, gathered members of that party that, in fact, he's been around quite some time. In fact, he may have been around since the beginning of time. And what he's had to do is keep reinventing himself when uh, everyone else around him starts to figure out that he's not getting older. He'll move on, he'll move to a new city, a new area, he'll relocate over time. A bit like the old guard, Paul, with a contemporary reference to something (laughs) we've reviewed quite recently. Uh, Yes, so this one's The Man from Earth, which I just thought was quite an interesting sort of thought experiment. I think fairly well handled, given that it's made for zero money. There's a Man from Earth sequel, which I saw recently, which is not particularly good. But if you watch the first one you might be interested to watch the second one support indie filmmaking and stuff guys the other one on that note is sound of my voice this one from the team of zal uh, bat manglage and um brit marling that we know now a lot more people have, have known or got to know through the oa the the netflix tv series uh, but they've worked together on a number of indies this is one of those The Sound of My Voice is all about a cult, a a little bit in common here with the OA in the sense that the cult leader played by Britt Marling claims that she has been alive for a long period of time. You can see the link with The Man from Earth. Uh, It's intriguing. It's fairly low key. It's not trying to be showy. Britt Marling, I've always found a kind of magnetic presence on screen for, for various reasons, not least because she's clearly very intelligent and invested in making interesting films that, mm. that make you think in one way or another. I mean, this one came out around the same, I think the same festival circuit time as Another Earth, the movie uh, about yeah, her dealing with, yeah, with grief. I remember enjoying that, uh, yeah. And really kind of breakout stuff for Britt Marling and, and Zal Batmanglish. So, uh, yeah, Sound of My Voice, uh, The Man from Earth, double entry, number five. I've cheated, I don't care. What's <laughs> next for you, Paul, at number four? Uh, number four for me is uh, 12 Monkeys uh, from Telly Gilliam all the way back in 1995. Um, most people have probably heard of this or seen this film, I would have thought, um, and probably then thought, know why it's on my list. Um, yeah, and at the moment, it does seem... There was a... There's a bit of graffiti in Bristol at the moment, Pete, where someone has put the, found a, an incredible graffiti template for the 12 monkey symbol and just put, we did it, uh, just by Temple Meads train station, weirdly enough, which is what has got 12 monkeys back in my mind, I'll be perfectly honest, um, is the fact that I see this every time I go to Bristol. So, um, yeah, 12 Monkeys, I think, is, is a great film. It's a very, very clever sci-fi thriller, obviously heavily inspired by a film called Le Jeté, um, written by Chris Marker, which I've never seen, I believe is a short uh, I'll be honest, I haven't seen it, so I can't speak for how good it is. It's supposed to be very, very good. Uh, but yeah, in, in a future world devastated by disease, a convict played by Bruce Willis is sent back in time to gather information about the man-made virus that wiped out most of the human population of the planet. So um, yeah, uh, quite prescient, I think, uh, currently. But yeah, it's one of those films that the first time you see it, the time travel, the time travel, I think, is really well really well handled here uh, and the twist at the end again I'm not going to spoil this one for the for you people that haven't seen this the twist at the end is just one of those for me it's one of my favourite film twists certainly one of my most memorable twists in a film uh, when you get to the end and you go what the fuck <laughs> like it's absolutely one of those moments for me so yeah uh, that's why 12 Monkeys uh, sits at number 4 
Nice. Uh, number four for me, and it is just one film this time, is one that I've mentioned four or five times already today. It's Groundhog Day from uh, Harold Ramis with, of course, Bill Murray and Ali McDowell. I mean, there's not loads more to say. I I've rewatched it not that long ago, actually, probably six months ago, and um, it stood up pretty well. I mean, the movie doesn't run too long, again, with that theme in mind, an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, the premise I think everybody's aware of, but of course that uh, this day of the groundhog, uh, the, when the groundhog comes up from the ground, is the day in which Bill Murray will be stuck for all eternity and then uses that uh, knowledge not unlike Andy Samberg to sort of experiment in Palm Springs of course to experiment with the consequences of one's actions when the day is just bound to end and then repeat uh, it's played for laughs at times it's vaguely creepy at times when he figures out how he's going to seduce Andy McDowell by learning every single facet of her character and set of interests uh, in, a, in a sort of creepy uh, creepy kind of fashion but uh, yeah Groundhog Day still works it's still pretty funny uh, the supporting performances are strong I like it and oh what's the isn't there a like a like a cameo Michael in this Shannon's from someone? In this, isn't he? Michael, a young Michael Shannon turns That's up. That's it. Yeah. I watched yes, this quite good, recently, good and I was shout. just like, "That is Michael fucking Shannon!" Like just in the back, he's at a party, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, good shout. Yeah, so Groundhog Day uh, makes my number four. It kind of had to be on the list. What's number th four for you? Three for me. Number three. Okay, yeah. Number three is uh, Time Crimes, uh, directed by Nacho Vigalondo, who people will probably be aware from. What was the Anne Hathaway? I say people probably were aware of it. Complete, Colossal. Colossal, that was it. I was thinking Collateral, but that's a completely different film. Uh, Colossal, we directed Colossal, the Anne Hathaway um, giant monster-ish film. Uh, but this is way before he made that. He made a film called Time Crimes in 2007, which is a Spanish film. Um, that For me, I remember watching it thinking, oh, what a head fuck of a film. Like, the, again, the less you say about Time Crimes, the better, which isn't me being lazy, trying to, trying to cut this section short. But you know where I'm coming from, Pete. I think you've watched this. Like, it really is the less you know, the better about this. Um, uh, essentially, a man. Uh, I'll go with IMDb and then leave it at that for the for the plot device. Uh, a man accidentally gets into a time machine and travels back in time nearly an hour, but finding himself will be the first in a series of disasters with unforeseeable consequences. So, um, yeah, you absolutely, uh, yeah, just you just have to watch this film. I'm surprised it hasn't been picked up for. There was rumor of a remake. I think I'm surprised it hasn't been remade um, at this point by Hollywood, but. It's just a very, very clever um, time travel film that I've got a lot of time for and is definitely massively underseen, I think. Time Crimes would make quite a good double bill with Palm Springs in the sense yeah. <laughs> that they're both a lot of fun, but also they're both quite uh, centrally concerned with relationships and fidelity and that kind of stuff. So Yeah, I'd say that's, I'd say that's a fair shout. Yeah. Um, well, keeping to that theme, my number three pick is a movie I talked about a week or a couple of weeks ago on this, uh, Midnight in Paris from Woody Allen from 2011. Uh, this one, well, the same year as Sound of My Voice, uh, as it goes. But yeah, uh, this one... Starring uh, an actor I like quite a lot, uh, Owen Wilson, who is in Paris with his fiancée, played by Rachel McAdams, uh, and he finds himself walking alone at night because he didn't want to go out with the uh, boorish character played by Michael Sheen and the, the cool kids. So he decides to walk on it home on his own. He is a writer, but he's caught in a sort of... Um, midlife crisis of sorts because he's producing Hollywood screenplays that are making him and his family very wealthy but he's not doing the kind of work that he aspires to the sort of um, the literature that he wants to write he wants to write the great American novel and maybe that's something that's going to eternally elude him and thousands of other authors uh, but at midnight in Paris lo and behold he's transported back to a sort of uh, interwar golden age uh, of the, the roaring 20s 
opportunities and meets all manner of fascinating characters from real life who can teach him all about uh, what, well, teach him. They can show him firsthand how life actually is at the time. And from that, he starts to be pulled in a few different directions. He's pulled towards a different time. He's also pulled towards a different woman and maybe a different sense of perspective on the life that he's left behind. Uh, it's well performed. It's uh, sort of the best or one of the best uh, sort of latter Woody Allen projects. It just all works quite well, I think. And it's it's got a charm to it that sometimes eludes Woody Allen, particularly in, in more recent output. So Midnight in Paris, really good. Um, time travel to the extent that you're traveling to a period that you hold in such high regard in, in the sense of Owen Wilson's literary aspiration. So yeah, really enjoyed it. Uh, what have you got next, Paul, at whatever your next number is? Uh, number two uh, is a film that, again, I was lucky enough to watch on the big screen this week, which was great because I can't recall ever seeing certainly the first one at cinema. This is Back to the Future from Robert Zemeckis. Um, people have probably heard of this film, um, and rightfully so. Uh, absolutely timeless. I have to say, when I watched it again on the big screen, it was probably the first time I've seen it since um, Secret Cinema, where we kind of half watched it because there's a lot of things going on at a secret cinema event um so yeah it was great um I, what can you say about back to the future it hasn't already been said it's effortlessly funny the time travels i think very cleverly handled uh you've got brilliant um brilliant two-handed performance from michael j fox and christopher lloyd who just play off each other superbly well with so much chemistry it's ridiculous um and the film honestly watching this again for the first time in ages it runs it runs die on two hours it felt like it was done in about 40 minutes and that for me is always the sign of a great film when you come out and go what when, how did that film how was that two hours so yeah back to the future um something of an 80s classic and deservedly so uh, and that's why it's sitting at number two very nice uh, number two for me is uh, again pretty contemporary i probably should have spent longer on my list i should get to number one and say yeah yeah it's going to be la jetée from chris marker obviously yeah. that stands <laughs> head and shoulders above it's a movie i've seen i was very high it's a good film but it didn't make my list because i wanted to put things that came to mind fairly quickly and without too much thought and that's why at number two is edge of tomorrow the surprise sort of sleeper hit from doug lyman uh, and writer christopher mcquarrie or at least co-writer Christopher McQuarrie, uh, who's obviously worked on the Mission Impossible stuff with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is front and centre here with Emily Blunt. He plays this kind of super soldier who's going to keep reliving the same day every time that he dies. Live, die, repeat, isn't it? The other title, alternative title? That's absolutely what it should have been called, yeah. yeah. And All You Need Is Kill was its original title, I think, is what the is what the original source material is called. All You Need so Is Kill. crazy amount of titles. But yeah, yeah. Just, just one of those action projects that that ended up adding up to maybe more than the sum of its parts. I mean, of course, you hope for great things from Tom Cruise and the stuff he attaches himself to. Emily Blunt's very capable, and I think in this movie really broke out as a viable leading character uh, here and uh, a sort of action star of some skill as well. Um, and yeah, just Edge of Tomorrow is is really, really good fun. I mean, if visually outstanding the way in which the action is captured using a mix of cgi stuff and like live action real um practical effects is the the term i'm looking for uh i just it just really really impressed me and it was one of those that you can just sort of strap in and have a great time with for an hour and three quarters so yeah edge of tomorrow made my number two although there are lots of honorable mentions that could come up i'm gonna stick with this one for now and paul that puts you on number one i guess it does put me on number one this is the terminator uh james cameron's effort from 1984 um it's absolutely one of my favorite films i think full stop um it's just such an incredibly 
sparse, stripped-back um, thriller, time sci-fi, slasher film, stalker film. There's so many things. Terminator makes such a good job of throwing together all these elements. Um, and it's just one of those films for me where just everything's right. Like there's no there's no fat on the bones of this film whatsoever. It's just such a tense film from start to finish. Um, Schwarzenegger again marks the arrival of Schwarzenegger as a big star. He's absolutely incredible in this. Linda Hamilton's great here. Michael Bynes here. Um, yeah, absolutely superb. For anyone that doesn't know the story of Terminator, um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a cyborg sent back from the future to assassinate uh, Sarah Connor before she can give birth to the leader of the resistance against the machines in a future war. Um, for me, yeah, like a lot of there's some argument about whether Terminator Two is a better film or not. I I don't think it is. I think Terminator Two is is good, but I just think it's it's a little bit bloated in places. Uh, and I think this, yeah, Terminator take, takes absolutely no prisoners, um, and is just an incredible, incredibly, incredibly tense piece of cinema from start to finish. Couple of dated special effects shots, but you can't really you can't really knock it for that because it's such a such a tight film otherwise. So. Yeah, Terminator is my number one um, time travel-ish film. I'm on thin ice with my number one, Paul, if I'm honest. Um, and I've thought about... Is there no time travel in it? Or... <laughs> no, Paul, there very much is time travel. But Okay. Okay, what it came down to is, in various ways, the films that we've listed so far, and at least from my side, have used time travel in an interesting way to sort of ruminate on certain things. So... You know, you have what if a person lived throughout history? That was my first sort of joint pick. You've got your classic in Groundhog Day that sort of defined a, a subgenre, I guess. Uh, Midnight in Paris, what if I could travel to a different time, the time that I would prefer to live in, perhaps? An Edge of Tomorrow, just a banger of an action movie that uses time travel. But then is there a movie, at least in recent times, that could compete with a movie where at the end, the unravelling of what, time means has taken me from thinking this is a good film to I think I might start crying and I might not be able to stop <laughs> and um, my number one pick I don't even really want to say too much more about it um, my number one pick is the film Arrival and I'm sorry if that's a bit of a cop-out when it comes to a a time travel uh, choice but it kind of had to be and if no I'm kind of with you to be honest I kind of wish I'd picked it now to be honest I, I did consider it but no I'm I'm with you because Arrival is an, is an incredible film no doubt yeah. no doubt I mean thinking about honourable mentions which we'll come to in just a second but like uh I think about a movie like Donnie Darko and how the end of Donnie Darko affected me at the time when you realize mm. what the sequence means and what the decision means in that film and uh, it kind of gives me goosebumps talking about, even though that I think Donnie Dark is far from a perfect film and Richard Kelly kind of jumped the shark and went a bit mad. But at the time, though, it was an outstanding mm. experience and it really made me think. And I mean, I think over the test of time, Arrival's going to stand up probably a lot better than perhaps Donnie Darko has, albeit that had longevity for the ensuing sort of decade or so. Uh, but that same idea that like when you match up time travel with that sort of profound concern we have for what the point of this stuff is and what like our history means and what our future will entail. I mean, there's just such an artful um, rug pull at the end of that movie that it kind oh, absolutely. it kind of had absolutely. to be here so so that's my number one arrival uh, but paul any honorable mentions like anything that you wanted to get on the list but couldn't quite squeeze in uh, i'm just trying to think i mean yeah i mean obviously you've mentioned some there groundhog day is absolutely absolutely up there for me as a, as a really good example of a time travel film for sure 
Um, I'm just trying to think what else off the top of my head. Uh, Planet of the Apes that near, very nearly made the list because of the twist at the end. The twist at the end of Planet of the Apes. I would that I'll never. It's one of the films that, as a kid, I remember like. I remember seeing that where he walks across the beach and sees the Statue of Liberty. I'm like, Dad, can you explain that, please? And then I was just like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, they were like, that was Earth all the time. Like, so yeah, probably Planet of the Apes would, would be in there for me for sure um, because of that ending. Um, that's got to be one of the all-time great film endings, but that's a whole other top five, I guess. But yeah, um, that probably is the, the couple that jump out for me, to be fair. The, um, the filmmaker... Um Shane Carruth probably wishes that he could use time travel to go back to about 2004 or the wake of the release of Primer <laughs> so that he was well clear of whatever the fuck it is he's doing with his life right now. Yes. Uh, and so... Primer is a... You can't argue that Primer is a great film, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, people certainly can argue that. I know people personally who argue that Primer is an absolutely dreadful, near-unwatchable film. But I think from the point of view of doing sort of hard sci-fi and really digging into the implications of time travel, Primer is is something quite special and particularly if you caught it around the time of its release rather than sort of retrospectively passing judgment on it now and certainly after the Shane Ruth stuff that I'm sure you can look into yourselves all pretty murky what's going on right now and we we don't really want to poison the show with it at this point but yeah Primer needed a mention anyway at opposite end of the spectrum it idiocracy came to mind as just some like like goofy, oh, yeah, idiocracy's a f- that's, goofy that's a fun, fun that's a fun implementation of it definitely yeah I like uh, idiocracy feels almost like the word we're living in at the moment but with the less yeah, said about it, that the it kind of does <laughs> let's start spraying some Gatorade on those crops and we'll get out of this situation <laughs> uh, a modern kind of teen or like young adult-y kind of film that did time travel relatively well I thought uh, Project Almanac was not bad at all. No, that's true. I, Happy Death Day, we talked about it earlier, actually. I really wanted to throw Happy Death Day. I don't know why Happy Death Day. I think it came in my top five something else films at some point recently. Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to you, I think, are really, I think, are very underrated, personally. Yeah, in the stable of tenuous entries on the list, I could have also gone for Interstellar for obviously uh, obvious reasons. Uh, S- yeah. Source Code was pretty good and I think stands up to a, a rewatch, which I've done since. Uh, Looper's Looper decent. as well, Looper yeah, that was the other one. That yeah. I was going to come to, but and of course, other opinions are available and make your own lists, etc. Write into us, tell us why we're wrong, or agree with some of our picks. All these things are possible through the social media channels. Uh, those are at Strangers Cinema on Twitter, uh, Strangers in a Cinema on all of the others, really, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and so on. And then Strangers in a Cinema at gmail.com is the email if you want to get questions to the show, which we will read out and pay attention to. Uh, Paul, apart from checking out for this week, do you have anything for the credits section? Uh, yeah, I just want to briefly say that um, I don't know what I was thinking first time round. I've played more of Red Dead Redemption 2 this time round. I've started the game again, um, and I found it quite slow to start with. I was a bit critical of some of the mission structure being quite samey, but I have to say this time round, I have persevered with Red Dead Redemption 2. It's a beast of a game, uh, and I've got into it now, so Red Dead Redemption 2 would be my uh, re- right on the video game zeitgeist there. <laughs> nice. Uh, I, I guess I would say on the one hand, um, I want to give credit to or at least promote um, I May Destroy You the BBC drama that is available on the iPlayer now uh, you might have heard a bit of buzz about it and we haven't finished yet so I can't give like a full blown recommendation we haven't finished the series but so far really really impressive um, if quite difficult watch uh, quite dark uh, but the, the other thing I would be remiss if I did not say I've got to give credit to the FA Cup winning manager Mikel Arteta I thought I was waiting for this to come up you've managed to keep this quiet throughout the 
whole show. Yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Like yesterday, I, I watched just a, a quite magnificent display and, and a team come back from the brink, conceding an early goal, rallying and showing that there's there's life in Arsenal Football Club yet, which brings me, you know, endless, endless joy um, as someone who has been really fortunate to grow up with uh, predominantly Arsene Wenger as the manager of Arsenal as we rose to the very pinnacle of English football and even European football as well despite not winning the European Cup and now having fallen on relatively speaking harder times uh, it was just it was just such a great a great afternoon or early evening yesterday and and one of those things where there is a link here to things that you might care about, I suppose, Paul, is what I'm trying to say. Because uh, the diagnosis of Mikel Arteta with coronavirus right at the beginning and pre-lockdown was the deciding factor in bringing the Premier League season to a close early before resuming more recently, obviously, uh, with Project Restart. And in some ways, a real happy accident or a stroke of luck, I guess. Not that he got sick, but that it was detected and action was taken relatively quickly it could have been even more disastrous and then to see that same man lift the FA Cup I mean glorious what what a story uh but that's about all I have for this week Paul if there's nothing else to add should we get out of here for this week let's do it we'll be back we will be back in a week with a feature review of Proxima uh and then something else (laughs) lovely stuff check it out in a week's time see ya goodbye shut up and sit down